Welcome to the Spare Rib audio zine. Spare Rib is a student-run feminist organization located at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. This is Bad Christian, written by Tiffany Chang from the Devotion Edition, published winter 2023. The piece was originally illustrated and page designed by Monacy Shino and Kara Lewis, read by Tiffany Chang. Special thanks to Dartmouth College Radio for lending Spare Rib their time and space, making this audiozine project possible. Bad Christian Content Warning This piece contains acknowledgments of the femicide, rape, and sexual assault of late Korean-American activist Teresa Hagyung-cha. 28 black and white photographs document the late artist Teresa Hagyung-cha's Abel Whale, a ritual performance staged at a 1975 exhibition of her early work at UC Berkeley's Worth Rider Gallery. One of these images illuminates her kneeling robed figure with her arms clasped in prayer. From the slight overexposure of the image, a halo of light emerges around her head. She looks like a saint or a prophet receiving the words of God. The religious resonance of Teresa's pose invites associations with her most famous written work, Dikti, which interrogates the image of a good Korean Christian constructed by the joint forces of French Catholic missionaries and American colonization. I can even imagine her voice narrating her performance with the passages she wrote in her book. I envision her speaking directly to the white missionaries, who expected obedience from the Korean Christians kneeling at the masses they held in Seoul. Teresa has even eaten the body of Christ, made her body a willing receptacle for his sacrifice, saying, Black ash from the palm hosanna, ash. Kneel down on the marble, the cold beneath, rising through the bent knees. Close eyes, and as the lids flutter, push out the tongue. Within her image, Teresa carries the tripartite weight of a Judeo-Christian prophet, a Korean shaman, and a Joseon era Giseng. In unpacking the religious histories embedded in this image, the audience of this fragmentary record may pay homage to the groundbreaking Korean artist whose violent death was eerily foreshadowed by her work's devotion to martyred women. Her performance creates a work of beauty from Korea's religious colonization. It invites us to reflect on how we might engage in worship while refusing to stay obedient to the legacies of white supremacy. For if Teresa's refusal to equate her performance of religious rituals to rituals of obedience to the West can be found anywhere, it's in the secret histories she imparts to her audience. Flooding Korea with missionaries from the early 20th century, French Catholics wove themselves into Korean studies before they did its culture. While most of Korea's Confucian scholars had only a passing interest in Jesuit literature, some were taken in by its charms. Shunned by the Vatican for practicing jesa, the traditional Korean rites for the dead, and feeling increasingly alienated from the continuing evolution of Korea's spiritual traditions, Korean Catholics trod a controversial and persecuted path. And yet when the Japanese colonized Korea, half of the signatories to Korea's new Declaration of Independence in 1919 were Christians. Imperial Japan gave even the most French Catholic of the Koreans something new to kneel for in secret. In the Abel Whale photographs, Teresa's hands are clasped in prayer, but she is not an obedient Christian. 
Reverend Christians illuminate their faces with the light which emanates from their holy altars. They don't obscure themselves in shadow and hide the piety of their expressions from the Lord. True Christians, or Catholics, with all their love of ritual, pray to actual relics or saints, if not directly to God himself. They don't pray to white walls in a cold and sterile room, lit only by the capricious flares of candlelight. John the Apostle warns us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Teresa's mysterious persona reads in priestly white robes and a gauzy head sash, which trails alongside her hair to touch the floor, challenges her audience to beware this false prophet. Would you follow a prophet who prays to nothing? If her image of a good Christian takes you in, Teresa's performance successfully replicates Koreans' hoodwinking of the French Catholic missionaries who unwittingly sowed the seeds of hope in Korea's future independence fighters. Today, critical reception of her work still seizes upon metaphors of shamanism, that mystical world, that mystical word of the Orient that's the closest thing existing in English to calling these Asian women witches. Martin Patrick of the Cranert Art Museum in Illinois says that the quasi-mystical procedures of Cha's performances recall certain aspects of traditional Korean shamanism, which features women priests, udang, conducting rituals incorporating transpossession. Cha, a perpetual American outsider to the Korean heritage she spent her brief yet brilliant artistic life honoring, would probably not have resented such a comparison. But as a Korean-American daughter who, like Teresa, grew up in California, I see something else. When I see her frozen stills of prayer in this unrecorded performance, all I see is the tentative way my younger self fell into Sunday school church rituals at the bequest of my Christian Korean parents, grandparents. Seeing her, my body is instantly reminded of how I got abruptly pulled out of my Christian future of kneeling when my distinctly unchristian Korean mother, learned that the stories of Jesus' bloody sacrifice gave me nightmares that I, too, would one day be called upon to sacrifice my body for a God whose love I never learned to feel. Teresa's performance is a Rorschach test. Whether you see it as a failed experiment in Korean-American Christianity or the legacy of shamanist folk tradition, the ambivalence of its interpretations is an apt metaphor for diaspora artists tasked with creating culture from cobbled together historical motifs. Like Teresa, I've invented, I've inherited an attraction to aesthetic spiritual muddling from those Korean Catholics who refuse to give up Jesha, even at the cost of acceptance by the Vatican. So let us return to this false prophet, this woman who stays out of place even in this heroic history of proud Catholics. A self-proclaimed artist, filmmaker, and author in California before the new millennium, she is no daughter to those French Catholic Koreans, although her name is both French, Teresa, and Korean, Hagyong. Although she is long since gone, she is what they call avant-garde, an artist of her time. So what is she kneeling for here, still, after all these years? Unlike art critics like Martin Patrick, I'm completely fine with the reality that Teresa doesn't have to be a shaman or an obedient Christian to be a damn good performer. We even have a traditional role for female performers of ritual dance and song 
who kept Korean indigenous traditions alive, despite increasing pressures to assimilate their art into the dominant aesthetics of a more powerful culture. In this instance, the Tang Dynasty, rather than the European West, the Giseng. Giseng were female performers of a low-born class who served in the King's Court Entertainment Bureau to entertain government officials and visiting ambassadors with the arts of song and dance. Gisengs are often sensationalized in Korean dramas as seductresses or prostitutes, making their contributions to traditional Korean literature and ritual performances largely overlooked. But one needs only to peruse the story of the Giseng Hongdo, Lustrous Peach, whose composition of a poem about her life as a caged parrot so moved her employer that he allowed her to recuse herself from her duties to the palace to sense the raw strength of their literary prowess. Gisengs were freedom fighters because their performances of beauty were inextricably intertwined with their fundamentally political livelihoods. Nunge, a Giseng serving the palace during the Hideyoshi invasion, even killed an inebriated Japanese general on one of her nights of employment further evidencing that the Giseng's politics were ever-present in the palace intrigue that governed the conditions of their art. Unlike the solitary figure that Teresa cuts against the darkness, Giseng's exist as a multitude. With lemon-colored jackets and crimson skirts, they give off clouds of perfumed hair in their beautiful silks as they enchant audiences with harmonies on their zithers and panpipes. There is a performance of the drum dance, in which two gisengs circle each other to the steady, yet quickening pace of a drum. We yearn for them to touch, even as they deftly avoid each other in their endless circling. There is also the dance of the nine weavings, in which twelve gisengs line up in flowing red robes and play a ball-throwing game in which they launch projectiles, with streamers streaking behind them like a comet's celestial journey towards a small, netted goal. Had Teresa been able to fully embrace the ghostly company of her Giseng brethren, perhaps she would not be so lonely performing and writing for audiences who interpreted her work through a binary of Orientalist tropes or heavily westernized references. In Dicti, Teresa's most famous written work, she rewrites the Western canon by retelling the story of the nine muses of art and literature. Recasting herself, her mother, an iconic female martyr such as Jeanne d'Arc in The Place of the Muses, Teresa allows her body to become a receptacle for Western histories in a desperate bid for the West to finally hear the voices of the marginalized. When Teresa wrote in Dicti that she allows others, in place of her, admits others to make full, make swarm, all barren cavities to make swollen, the others each occupying her, when the amplification stops there might be an echo, there is also room for a different interpretation. Rather than expanding the Western canon so that it may be allowed to greedily swallow stories from outside its geographic sphere, reading Teresa's work through the history of the Gisengs allows her to become the vessel for a different type of history. Perhaps now, Teresa may reach out to the Gisengs preceding her whose stories live on through the Korean diaspora she's created for the Korean-American artists who follow her. If I had to choose the ritual role that Teresa seeks to revise, to revive in this performance, it would be the role of the Giseng and not the Judeo-Christian prophet, not just for her freedom-fighting spirit, but also for her acute sense that the horizons of her artistic freedom exist within a state of entrapment. Hongdo's parrot poem illustrates the cost of beauty in a world designed to appropriate it for the ends of the powerful. Around its collar, it wears indigo and green, and its beak is cinnabar red. All because it knew how to talk, it got caught up in the net, 
Words long used to hearing it can repeat with skill, but newly acquired palace language it pronounces wrong. Imprisoned in a jade cage, no way to escape. Words are too powerful for such living vessels of beauty to contain, or so the Gisang's powerful overlords say. Our imperial officials told the Gisangs to shut it down, telling them not to boast of their jewels and silks lest they tempt the masculine propriety of the scholars who safeguard the futures of the Korean nation. So they packed it up and went home, leaving us haunted by what their art could have done to transform the palaces, churches, cathedrals, museums, schools we learn from these days. And now Teresa, the last of them, is relegated to going through the motions of a dance which perpetually reproduces a culture stripped of its history, frozen in time through a fading set of photographs. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. Our final act of penitence to the lost arts of these Gisang comes only in the truth, and what a haunting truth it is. Teresa was raped and murdered right before the publication date of the book which made her famous in America. To call her death violent seems an understatement, to mention it at all an act of blasphemy, to omit it altogether a historical erasure. There is no artistic solace for the continued violation of women like Teresa in this world. There is only the cold reality of her loss. Apart from the words of her family and friends, her art persists in little fragments that people like me scavenge for clues about her art. Her friend Sandy says, Her voice was like breath. You had to get close. That's how she drew you in. Pulitzer Prize finalist Kathy Park Hong says that her voice is both fragile and chilling, tranquil and eerie, like wetting the rim of a water glass and rubbing the rim until you hear the glass sing. National Book Award finalist Min Yun Lee says, My admiration for her is her sense of entitlement. If I'm being honest, my admiration for Teresa Hagen Cha is not so different from the admiration these other prominent Korean women have felt for her throughout the generations. Perhaps we want to manipulate her image and project our desires onto her because we need a savior. I want to make a living through my art, but I don't want to die like her. I don't want to die at the hands of a white man whose violence will always overshadow every history I excavate and every meaning I revive from the dead. I don't want to kneel, even if kneeling doesn't have to be a display of obedience to a god I don't believe in. I refuse to be an obedient subject, even if my body bears the cost of disobedience. I want nothing more than to be a bad Christian.